I could say meditation is a an invitation for space in your life, an in, mm. invitation to sanity. Welcome to another episode of Why Not Meditate podcast. I'm your host, Masako Kozawa, a teacher and a student of mindfulness meditation. I am so happy that you're here. Welcome back to the podcast. We have another amazing episode today. I had the honor and privilege to interview Dr. Melissa Moore. Since age 25, she has been a student of Vajrayana Buddhist tradition, I hope I said that right, and contemplative psychology. She is the co founder of Karuna Training, where she has been teaching Buddhist contemplative psychology for the past 27 years around the globe. In addition to her Buddhist teaching, Melissa has held many positions in the mental health field, specifically working with women. Melissa shared so much wisdom throughout this conversation, and yes, because she has been learning and teaching contemplative psychology for the past three decades, but more importantly, because she has personally sat with herself and courageously. Faced what was inside of her. As I shared in the previous few episodes, sitting with yourself and facing your shadow, I cannot emphasize enough how critical and necessary that is at this time of human history. Like Melissa says in this interview, it is a matter of life or death. She also shares how uncomfortable that process was for her. And initially, she did try to run away from it, but she didn't. She conjured up the courage she needed to face good and bad and ugly. But the reward of doing that is sanity and contentment, which I believe is priceless, don't you think? Well, this is going to be another kickback episode. And I hope you are ready for it. So, without further ado, please welcome the co founder of Karuna Training, Dr. Melissa Moore. Hi, Melissa. Thank you so much、Hello. for being here today. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you so much for having me. I am so excited to have you share your story, your journey so far. I mean, you have an extensive experience and knowledge of Buddhist teaching and also. A contemplative psychology, and you've been teaching and also living this lifestyle for like I, I read since age 25. Yes. Like, what well, happened <laughs> at age 25 that you got into this field?、Uh, a bunch of accidental good luck.、Mm-hmm. <laughs> a lot of, we say in our tradition, auspicious coincidences、mm-hmm. coming together. I really was not looking for a Buddhist path. I was very much interested in, at the time, rock and roll, to be honest. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and I was following a rock and roll band、uh, into Boulder, Colorado. And I was looking, I was interested in dance. And so、mm-hmm. I went looking for a dance class, and somebody led me to Naropa Institute on the Pearl Street Mall.、Mm-hmm. And that was. Where they meditated first. And I had run into meditation because at the time I was working for a 
radio station in Kansas City. And um, there was a Sunday kind of new age program mm -hmm. that I was involved in getting all the speakers for. So I had met a couple who were into meditation and had studied meditation. I've just barely been introduced to it. So it seemed like a very interesting thing, but I wasn't dedicated to certainly working in that way with myself. So when I went to the dance class, they meditated at the beginning, which I thought was really stupid. And it was a kind of echo chamber because I could see that I was so judgmental of them and of myself in the space of what they were doing and that I was uncomfortable, you yeah. know, and in a way that was my first Buddhist teaching because it was like seeing my mind reflected back to me. Mm. And um, that was the very beginning. And so through other circumstances, I met Trungpa Rinpoche and uh, it was the kind of thing where a lot of, Things were happening in Boulder at the time. Allen Ginsberg was there. Barbara Dilley was teaching dance there. I'd heard about her. And there was also a lot of contact improvisation happening at Naropa. It was a very much an art center. Mm -hmm. So I had to have an excuse to go there. And they only offered two master degree programs. I already had my BA in ancient Greek. <laughs> oh, wow. And I did not want to have one of the degrees was in Buddhism, and I was I knew I wasn't interested in that. So the other one was in Buddhist psychology or Buddhist contemplative psychotherapy. And I thought, well, that sounds interesting. I mean, literally, I was just looking for an excuse to be there and somehow got in the program. And that's wow. when I was introduced to contemplative psychology. It was a lot of mishap and missteps. I was very young, but it was great because very soon I started to notice that through the meditation and being introduced, which was an excruciating exercise, it was very hard for me to sit with myself. Um, and now I know that I had a lot of trauma that I was working through, but I they never addressed, that was never addressed in those days, right? You just sat through everything, mm. like it or not. I had a really hard time with it. And, Can you explain? Uh, because I know a lot of us have such a hard time sitting just quietly, sitting yeah. still. And well, why? what's happening inside of us when we're experiencing that discomfort? I would say in language that I have now that I didn't have then is that I had not had no way to pacify my nervous system in a way. I had no way to work with my mm -hmm. anxiety and everything that I was meeting every time I sat down. I felt a lot of intensity in my body. That's all I could experience. And a lot of screaming to get away from myself because I was so not able to be with that intensity. So for me, it was a lot of grinning and bearing with it. Mm -hmm. And really, nobody really had ways. I mean, luckily at the time I was a runner. <laughs> so often I would go from meditating directly outside and run up a mountain. You know, I was just like trying to get, it was still in my body, but I was like, I was running away from myself or something. And um, mm -hmm. so it took me many years and an entire month of sitting and a lot of hard really a lot of struggle, frankly, mm -hmm. to finally understand that there's something called space mm -hmm. in the world, that there's something called 
relaxation in the body that there's that that occurs when we are able to arrive in our body and experience ourselves without this kind of low level anxiety and it has to do with how we incorporate the space that's all around us and within us into mm -hmm. our mental consciousness and that can take a long time for people mm -hmm. and for me it did take a long time and so i think now how I talk about meditation is like not trying to fit ourselves into a, a mold. Mm -hmm. Like you sit like this and you hold your breath and you do this with your mind. That kind of thing is can be very agitating mm -hmm. if people have a lot of trauma. So I invite people to really find their way into the practice by paying attention to what's coming up in their body, speech, and mind, in their body, in their emotions, and in their mind, and really befriend what it is and give it space. Like, you might need to move around quite a bit before you can find your posture. Mm -hmm. You might need to just do a kind of walking meditation that synchronizes you in movement. What we're really looking for is synchronization, right? All mm -hmm. parts of ourselves doing the same thing. That's what meditation is training us in. Mm. It's synchronizing our body, our breath, and our mind in the present moment. That's the it's practice, beautiful. right? Yeah. We have to come back to that again and again. And it's fresh every moment that we're able to do that. But then, and some days are easier than others yeah. <laughs> too, right? Yeah. Depending on what we have going on. So I think that we have to give ourselves a tremendous amount of love and kindness from the <laughs> onset to not just stick ourselves into a mold and try to do it right. That's yeah, really aggressive, actually. But to find our a gentle way into the practice and what works for us. Some people, you know, closed eye is one type of meditation. Open eye is a completely other type of meditation how you hold your hands, how you sit, whether you're in a chair, whether you look out a window, whether you look at a flame, or you just follow your breath with your gaze down. All these things have tremendous effect on the mind. Yeah. And so we have to find our way. Yeah. We have to try lots of things and be given permission to do so. That's what I think. As Westerners, particularly, because we did not grow up sitting on the floor being contemplative, right? We're like... Yeah. Kings and queens of distraction. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> right? I mean, it's just amazing. Yeah. It has gotten worse. <laughs> it's only gotten worse, yes, with the uh, the technology. My yeah. attention span is so much shorter now than it used to be. Thanks to they you. They say, what did they smartphone. say? <laughs> 17 seconds. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Most people can hold their mind 17 seconds on a video. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the um, the proof the point, that we need the mindfulness practice more than ever. Right? Yes. I think it's actually, it's a matter of life and death because it affects the quality of our life, of how we live our life. Oh my gosh. Let's unpack that statement. Yeah. <laughs> because how we move through a day, the rhythms of our day, has everything to do with the quality of our life, right? Mm. So if we're the type of person that begins their day by pushing the alarm clock off 15 times because we don't want to get up, right? 
that has a very strong effect on our day. So I think that somehow there's no lesson in life or unless you have a very conscious parent or parents that somehow teach you about the rhythms of the day. Mm -hmm. Most of us don't discover what works for us until we're at least in midlife, if not old age, right? As far as how to live our life in a very synchronized, decent way. For example, one of the great things I learned from Buddhism right, right away is one of the teachers said, well, just look at your environment, your everyday environment. That's a reflection of your mind. <laughs> In a meditation class, I was about 24 at the time, and I went home, and I went, oh, my God, <laughs> that's my mind. My bed was all gnarled up, you know, clothes everywhere, <laughs> this and that. I mean, in those days, we had albums. I was really into music, so I had like 50 albums out on the floor. (laughs) So I spent the whole time just cleaning up my room in this very meticulous way. And I took that to heart because I noticed when I did clean up my room, my mind felt lighter, right? You feel instantly good. So it was sort of like, learn to make your bed. That kind of simple mindfulness. Yeah, actually has an effect on your mind. It I really does. Sounds so, <laughs> it sounds so crazy. What our mothers always said, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I've been teaching my daughter. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but everything, like how you make your break. Do you give yourself time in the morning to reflect? Mm-hmm. Do you give yourself time to sit and look out the window? Or if you're a musician, play music, or if you're a meditator, do submit it. I'm very good at meditation in the morning. If I miss my time in the morning, I pretty much don't go back to it mm. for me. So that's part of my rhythm, right? Yeah. And I think all of that is meditation. So therefore, to unpack that statement that it's a matter of life and death, is that you know we always think that these things that we accomplish in our life or that we do, what do we do? What are we doing with our life? Are these big, we buy a house or if we have something, a car, whatever it is that we think we want, all of those things only last a little while as far as success. But when we establish this relationship with our life that's mindful, then cooking becomes an event every day. Mm. Sitting with our family becomes an event. Yeah. You know, building that into the space of our day is a practice. And I consider that as important as sitting on the cushion. That's why I say it's a matter of life and death, because there's things that happen in our life that are challenging, right? All of us have to deal with that. We're all going to face the death of people and separations and birth, old age, sickness, and death, right? All those things. There's no getting out of those But if we're not stable in our life, how we meet those circumstances of our life will be directly affected by whether we have some stability in our life already. Yeah. Because the bottom is going to go out from time to time. Mm -hmm. That's just how life is. Right? I think meditation prepares us for meeting the challenges of life. Mm. So when you start meditating in your 20s, and then you gradually oh, like it took me a long time. Your muscle. <laughs> <laughs> then I got very religious. Of course, I had my very religious period where I was doing long retreats. 
Okay. And leaning, leaning, leaning into practice. Practice was the only thing that worked. Mm. That was super swinging to the other extreme. I tend to do that, right? <laughs> From like rock and roll to just <laughs> extreme religion. Of meditation. <laughs> yeah, and <laughs> retreats, lots of retreats, especially while I was living in Europe and I was starting to teach. I felt like, oh, I wasn't ready. So I just would go on these retreats and mm. download as much Dharma and do as much practice as I could, being a good girl, so to speak, you know, following the tradition. And now, I mean, all of that was wonderful. Mm-hmm. And yet I can see that a lot of that was just checking off the things I needed to do to go on to the next practice, right? I was turning that into a an occupation. Mm. So, you know, we can do anything. Meditation, we can be as habitual in meditation as we can in everything else. Yeah. So I think, you know, training that mind is training ourselves to come back to say, what's happening here? Because just because we're on the meditation cushion and doing it every morning at 8.30 doesn't mean that we're meditating, actually. Mm. We might just be checking off a box. Yeah, it becomes one of those (sighs) things to do and to get something. You know what yes. I mean? That's what like I we're going to get somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, the real thing is you get nowhere. And that's the point <laughs> that you can actually do nothing. I mean, imagine. <laughs> How weird is that? The concept of doing nothing and just being. Yes. And then how come that's okay? I have struggled with that concept for so many years. Yeah. And also, do you notice that when you do nothing, mm-hmm. If you do it regularly, like you actually insert meditation space into your life, you have more time. That's, That's yeah. the other yeah. strange paradox <laughs> of the whole thing. Yeah. Because you're relating to time differently, right? Yes. You're relating to time differently. You're not just cramming every minute full of something accomplishment. That's exactly what I posted on my Instagram this morning. <laughs> oh, you did? Yeah. Um <laughs> I talked about the most productive thing that you can do is to meditate, especially if you feel you don't have time. Because if you do it, then your life is going to feel less busy and less hectic. And I cannot explain how that's going to happen. And the shift is usually very subtle and gradual, but everything changes. And you but it is explain. a slowing down of the mind and inserting yeah. space into our experience in a way that we actually experience our experience. Yes. That's what's so wonderful. We experience our experience. We taste our food if we actually sit down at a table and take time to eat. It's kind of a law of the universe. It doesn't even belong to meditation. I think it has to do with how we respectfully i think it comes to this question of virtue you and i Mm. were speaking about before this notion of what is virtue Mm. really yeah for me virtue and sanity this is an old-fashioned word sanity uh we use it in contemplative psychology basic sanity or sometimes brilliant sanity when we're so synchronized we experience the world as it is, if mm. that's painful or cheerful or whatever, we really experience experience mm. in a kind of timeless time. 
that's sanity. It may not be good, you know, we might feel the grief of something or we might feel whatever it is we feel, but we're synchronized. And I think virtue has to do with some kind of relationship between our actions, our body, our words, and our mind with that innate nature of things, something like that, mm. like being in sync with our world. Yeah. I don't know. What do you think? I'm curious. <laughs> <laughs> you you brought up the word earlier. The virtue. Yeah. Um, to me, it's respect. Respect, yeah. Yeah, respect and appreciation toward yeah. everything that is contributing to your existence. Right. So That's that beautiful. could be anything, right? Yes, I that love that. That could be the people around you. That could be the, the structure that you live in. It could be the nature that gives you everything, the sunshine or trees or the air or water yeah. or any of those. The elements. Elements. Yeah. Nice. Just recognizing them and appreciating them instead yes. of just taking them for granted. Yes. Which is the fruit of meditation, really, in the long run, right? Yes. That it slows, it gives enough space in your mind and gives you perspective enough to see, see and experience the world yeah. more clearly. But it's a long path because we have a lot of <laughs> mental conditioning, don't we? Oof. We do, and then we try to run away from it, or we try to put band-aid on whatever we don't want to see. It's mm -hmm. really that we sit with the experience for the mm -hmm. sake of experiencing it, like you said. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it makes you wiser. That's where the wisdom comes from. It doesn't belong to us, but we join with the wisdom of the world. That's what I think. When we synchronize, we join with the wisdom of the mm -hmm. world. And a certain the wisdom that like knows like the moon knows its cycles and the sun knows when to rise and the flowers know when to open and birds know how to migrate etc. All that wisdom is our wisdom too, right? We have that wisdom if we don't get too distracted. <laughs> we are so good at distracting ourselves. <laughs> I don't know That's if funny. we are living or if we are just distracting ourselves <laughs> yes. throughout our life. You know? Yes. Yes. <laughs> I want to hear how the benefits of meditation started showing up in your own life. I mean, you've been meditating for many years. Well, the number one thing was I found out that I could be friendly to myself instead of harsh with myself. Mm. And I had been, as a dancer, and also had a very developed eating disorder, I was very harsh with myself and others, mm. very critical in my mind, and, you know, the usual mental conditioning of most. I feel I was in a pretty strong pattern of self-hatred when mm. I met the med meditation, and that's why it was so hard to be with myself. And so, as I gradually... Uh, I was sort of in a program that forced me to meditate. They literally, I got in so much trouble running during meal times and getting, you know, being basically hard to manage as a student mm -hmm. that they made me be on the meditation cushion at a certain time. And they were kind of watching me so I could stay in the program. So that was hard. I, I don't 
particularly recommend that because it <laughs> turned me into an adolescent, really, which I was already. <laughs> so, you know, it would just emphasized it more. But nevertheless, somewhere in there, there was some softening towards myself. And the main thing was where it really played out was I realized I didn't have to be bulimic anymore, that I, I noticed that wherever I went, my mind followed me and that I could really stay with myself, even if I'd eaten too much food, I didn't have to act out this purging piece. Mm -hmm. So I literally learned to sit with myself through a lot of, you know, hard moments. Mm -hmm. And that was very, very useful. And then I went further on the path. And in Vajrayana Buddhism, you're given lots of implements. You're given a bell and a dorje and damarus. And so there's the synchronization. You're given practices uh, where you visualize. It's all very preoccupying. And you throw rice and fling rice. And it's, it's very ritualized. So that was very good for me because that was a kind of synchronization in meditation that had a lot of content to it and study and took me down into the realm of deities mm. and how you use your mind to identify with the wisdom aspect of those deities that exists in you. Mm. And so that was very empowering. That was all during a period I was getting my dissertation and doing a lot of things in the world and noticing that I was gaining a voice and a lot of power. And I felt that was coming a lot through my Vajrayana practice. And then I became a, I started teaching Buddhism in that period, which was shocking because I always felt, of course, like a fraud. I still do sometimes. I mean, you know, I mean, you know, it's just really a hard and very high bar to meet the Buddha Dharma. And I think there's one has to be very humble, and it's a very treacherous path to become a teacher because then you think you might know something mm -hmm. that's deadly. So, <laughs> so I, I've been highly aware of that. So you know, one thing leads to another, but Buddhism really created a, a voice for me, or I found my voice. Let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. I found my wisdom. I found my voice, and I was able to, I was learning to be a therapist in those days. I didn't like the therapeutic model because I don't like the colonization of psychotherapy and all of that. Yeah. And I was working with women and I really had a, a lot of perspective on it. And I feel that allowed me to jump out of being a therapist and become a teacher more. That's what I chose to do instead of be a therapist. Mm -hmm. So I really credit my my Dharma training to uh, allowing me to sharpen the mind, the incre incredible mind I've been gifted with and, and um, benefit a lot of people, I hope. Yeah. And But at the same time, it's I also, I'm a Westerner, right? I, I still feel like we have to keep this in perspective. We're, I'm like the second or third generation of Westerners to receive the Buddha Dharma mm. of the Vajrayana, right? And so we have no idea with that culture what it really, you know, I mean, there's a big translation yeah. piece there. And I think uh, I just feel like a beginner still very much, mm. even though I've done hours and hours of practice. It's a drop in the bucket, so to speak. That's not to be discouraging to people. It's more like Let's put it in perspective, you know. Yeah. When you really meet meditation masters, they've done 
thousands and thousands and thousands of hours of practice. So I guess it's what you're measuring up to. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned the word Dharma a few times. Mm -hmm. Can yeah. you explain it? Well, Dharma is, the Buddha Dharma is one of the three jewels, right? There's the Buddha as an example, the teacher, then the Sangha, which is the community of people you practice with. And then the Dharma is the teachings or the truth. It's dharma means truth. Okay. So Dharma is anything that helps you unlock the truth in your mind that already has existed in your own mind. Mm. So I think that there are so many Dharmas in the world. They don't, it doesn't belong to Buddhism. It belongs to the wisdoms of the world, our Dharmas, right? Truths that can open our mind and benefit others. Mm. And you have found yours, your Dharma. Well, my dharma is tied up with teaching and perpetuating the teachings of Trung Rinpoche, and he had a very particular teaching called Maitri Space Awareness. Okay. And so this uses the uh, five Buddha family mandala, which is an ancient tantric mandala. And each, uh, there's a white in the middle, and each of the four directions and the middle have an element, that's the outer aspect, and they have an emotion, a klesha, a negative mental conditioning, and they go together with the way the mind is constructed, and then they also have a wisdom component. Mm -hmm. And so this mandala, and he actually gave us practices, Westerners, uh, psychological practices to postures that you lie in. Mm -hmm. And now I would call this, it's, it's called Maitri Space Awareness, but how I've been talking about it lately is heart. It's a heart medicine. It's very much helping us abide in the heart and have friendliness towards ourselves and compassion towards others. Mm -hmm. Because you see yourself so clearly when you lie in these postures, in these different colored rooms or different colored glasses. The third part of it is perspective. It somehow gives you perspective on yourself in relationship to others. Mm. So it's called Maitri Space Awareness, but I've been calling it heart medicine perspective because it brings us into our heart, cultivates a lot of loving kindness towards ourselves, and also gives us such it widens the mind, it gives us perspective. So for example, you know, after you've had a relationship that's gone bad or a friendship that's gone bad and you've given it time and you've had time to think about it, you can start to see clearly your part in it and their part in it. And you can come to an understanding and have perspective, right? About yeah. our relationships. Yeah. Instead of being reactive and emotional as we are in the beginning, right? Yeah. So Maitri is about transmutation. It's about making that wideness happen instantly by leaning into the intensity of the emotion and staying with it physically through some level of trust so that you gain perspective by doing this. Mm. And it's a very powerful Vajrayana practice called mm -hmm. intensification practice. And that's what my dharma has been <laughs> as far as teaching people about that ways in which to widen the mind through meditation practices. Mm. Well, a lot I, of, a lot of information. I <laughs> You're going to have to edit a lot of this out. <laughs> and I believe that applies to everybody. 
Oh, it does. But there is a cultural component. Okay. Definitely. I think so. I mean, it encompasses the five bit of families encompass cultures as well. You could yeah. even put each culture into one of the quadrants. Okay. So nothing is all one thing. We're a mixture. Mm -hmm. of, we're talking about these five aspects. The Buddha understood it as uh, body, speech, mind, quality, and action. These are the five Buddha families. And so in Tantric, that got translated into five literal families with a whole system of thought. And that's the Dharma that I teach called contemplative psychology. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that sounds very helpful, and that sounds it's something helpful. that we all need. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, the main thing that's helpful, Masako, is that it teaches us to <clears throat> the nature of our emotions. Mm. That we have this emotional thing, and a lot of Dharma people use meditation to suppress emotions, mm. and that can be very helpful, especially when the emotions are flooding us or we're not able to get our breath or we're not able to feel, right? In the beginning, you have to contain them. But when you have enough stability of mind and you can begin to move toward emotion, what you learn is emotions are dynamic. They're moving all the time. Yeah. And so if you surround them with uh, attitude and heart of loving kindness and hold them as a teacher, they will shift and move, but you're going through them that you're allowing it to infuse you with the wisdom that it's there to teach you instead of mm -hmm. suppressing it and saying, I'm fine, everything's okay. No, really, I'm okay, <laughs> right, yeah. when we're not. Or acting it out, which is another form of abuse, actually. It's just adding fuel to the fire. This mm -hmm. is contemplatively meeting the energy of emotion and staying with it in such a way that it transmutes into the wisdom that it's there to teach us. And so I often feel like what I'm teaching should be taught in kindergarten. People need yeah. to learn how to work with their emotions in a powerful yeah. way. And I just know from teaching contemplative psychology for so long, people are like, why didn't I learn this before? Yeah. And I think it's like we have an operating system in us, <laughs> literally, and it's mm -hmm. about learning how to use it. Yeah. And mindfulness and meditation and contemplation are all part of those tools. Yeah, I feel like we don't really value it as much as we should. We focus on like doing things more than being. Yes. I mean, it's doing accomplishment yeah. is more visible than your contemplative practice. And how do you measure, you know, your progress on your contemplative practice, right? Yeah, I think you can measure it with your own contentment, mm. right? coming home to yourself mm. and how you feel. Yeah. Because when we're trying to measure up to something else, we're never at peace, right? Right. We're just trying to be something that we're not. And when we can come home to ourselves, even if we're angry or we're uh, jealous, these terrible emotions that we might feel or grief, uh, there's yeah. so much grief to do. Yeah. We need grief and we need to witness one another's grief. I really believe this. We're so good at suppressing it. Yeah. So we need all of these flavors in our life for wisdom. What I have noticed by going through some life struggles within like short 40 some years of my life is that I try to suppress the hard negative emotions 
Yeah. But by doing that, I was numbing my sense, ability to sense other feelings. Yeah. The positive feelings. Like I could not、yeah. just pick certain feelings and then not others. Yeah. So for a few years, maybe several years, I just could not feel joy、oh, because I、yeah. numbed myself so that I won't have to feel the grieving、yeah. or sadness.、Mm-hmm. But. And, and you know, I think、um, one of the beautiful teachings of、um, Trunk Prempeche is he has this slogan called、uh, Genuine Heart of Sadness.、Hmm. That human beings, if we're honest with ourselves about life, it's sad. There's a lot of sadness. If you're open in your heart, there is sadness. Just raise your gaze. Yeah. Everywhere in the world, it's sad. But can we stay open and feel sad?、Hmm. Can we feel sad joy? That is a real at the heart of contentment, right? And how,、mm. you know, letting life and its pain permeate us in such a way that we open instead of close. Yeah. That we become bigger hearted, more permeable, more porous, more available to the world.、Mm. That's the training. But it's counterintuitive. <laughs> yeah. So you teach at the.、Uh, Karuna Training, you are the co founder of Karuna Training. Right. And can you explain what it does? It's a real cert- certification in contemplative psychology, which is a body of work from Trung Prabhache. So it's 11 courses. Currently, it's 11 courses. Okay. And we're learning how to do it in the age of COVID, right?、Mm-hmm. So we put part of it online. I'm not particularly satisfied with that, though. I, we used to do everything in person. And so it's such an awareness focused contemplative body of work that it's better when it's in person. Yeah. So we, these retreats absolutely have to be done in person. When we go into the different rooms or have different glasses, we have to be in person because that's very nuanced awareness and subtle. We do all the training in a cohort、mm-hmm. because we meet each other. And then a year and a half to two years later, we've gone through a whole process together. And a lot of what we're studying, we're studying in our relationship to one another、mm-hmm. and how we show up in a group. And because you see a lot about yourself when you're in a hall of mirrors. And a lot of our practices are built to be halls of mirrors. We do a lot of experiential work so that we see our mind, that we see our. Tendencies and our mental condition, and we meet it with kindness first、mm-hmm. and curiosity second, and and that we learn to join with it in such a way that it makes us wiser. So it's a path of unpacking our mental conditioning and coming into our natural state, which is open、mm-hmm. and vulnerable and permeable. And so we do that in a cohort, and then people get a 300 plus hour certificate in contemplative psychology. That's the basic training.、Okay. And then we have a graduate training where we take our methods and we inspire people to take them into their work in the world, whatever that is.、Mm-hmm. So we have certain methods called compassionate exchange work or body speech and mind or speaking from the heart. And we, these are facilitated mindfulness practices that integrate contemplative psychology and Western psychology as well. Mm-hmm. Because there's a lot of process involved. And the main thing is that we attune ourselves to the present moment and that we understand that at our core, no matter what 
all human beings, all sentient beings have basic sanity. Hmm. That even if you have a diagnosis or you're dying or something's terribly wrong or you're on the spectrum or whatever it is that we can assign to ourselves these days, we have sanity as our birthright. Hmm. And that through our presence and our interaction with others, we can attune to that sanity in ourselves and we can evoke it in others. And then we make a genuine heart connection, a compassionate exchange. So we study these components over the course of 11 courses. And it awakens what I think we're all starving to death for, which is genuine heart contact. Mm. You know, we have these little devices and we're very quick yeah. to communicate, but we're missing the contact, you know, the, yeah. the heart spark of love yeah. that is bottomless and all humans possess it. And how you possess it and how I possess it is different. So we have to learn about that and respect that. Mm. So that's the training pretty much. And it's it's life, it can be very life transformative for yeah. people. And I'm not training therapists. Um, I took, I uncoupled this contemplative psychology from the therapeutic training from Naropa. Okay. Because um, I myself went through an uncoupling from therapy. So I wanted, I felt like these skills were necessary no matter who we were. We don't have, in fact, being a therapist can be in the way because you have an idea of therapist, right? Mm -hmm. So it's just, you know, coming home to ourselves, but it's a longer program of doing so with a lot of language and real specific practices to it. That's what Karina training is. Thank you for letting me explain it. Yeah, um, I was very curious. You mentioned uncoupling from therapy field. Can you describe the problems that you witnessed? Well, I mean, therapy, I think a lot of therapy can, especially these days, there's a lot of therapy. And I myself have gone through some therapies that have been very helpful when they're very focused on certain things, like particularly, I think, some of the trauma work and um, some of the attachment work that therapists are doing now. But when I first started being a therapist, there was just talk therapy a lot. And there was a, a kind of clinical, I think that psychology is a very young field. And yeah. it's been very patriarchal and very abusive, very misogynistic and very colonized. Mm. And so I think it has to go through a lot of changes to be decolonized and to become something that empowers all its users because where it's it's worst is in discrepancies in in populations that feel marginalized and don't have the voice or are not as privileged or have severe and chronic mental illness then those public mental health systems which I've worked in a lot there it's really hard to participate in that Mm -hmm. and um, it's not a healing environment. It's, it seems like part of the system, Yeah, you know, medic medications and yeah. a lot of it. Although some medications really, it's not a black and white situation, right? Some medications really yeah. save lives. So we have to be very discerning. But uh, for myself, I needed to step away from that. When I was working in it, I was working with women with sexual abuse and eating disorders and I just saw the kind of shadow side of the mm. the work and didn't want to participate in that. Yeah. So and also like it puts you in a almost like a victim mode. You know, like you need right. help. You need the help from a practitioner. And he, because right. you yourself cannot heal yourself. It. 
Right. And I think that if we had our communities intact and our societies mm -hmm. of grandmothers and families intact, the, the village, so to speak, or the tribal world that we probably came out of, that there would have been systems in place or have been in different parts of history that supported a lot of sanity, but we've, we don't have those now. A lot yeah. of those initiation rights and tribal mm. rights, we don't grieve in circle, we don't honor, you know, we've lost a lot of our understanding about the sacred. And therapy becomes another you know, something we hand our power over to, or just like yeah. the church or something. Yeah. And that's, that's not really, uh, but I think there's a lot of good therapy that does happen that does empower people too. Yeah. So don't get me wrong, but it's heartbreaking. It, it's mainly the, the real severe and chronic mental illness where I hope that some of the new plant medicines and these um, new, new renditions of, of work will be a game changer because we really have to stop doing what we've been doing. It's not, yeah. not okay. <laughs> I hear you. Yeah. yeah. Is your book also about contemplative psychology and in how we can apply to our yes. everyday life? It's that's what it's all about. And I, it's a lot of memoir and me using my stories on how I applied the work. And some of it is kind of textbook. You can, if not everybody would be interested in it, it might not be relevant unless you were in Karuna. A lot of it mm -hmm. is for Karuna students. But um, the book takes you through, the first part is tilling the ground of intrinsic health, our basic sanity, that we have health as our primary basis, no matter what, even when we're dying, there's health. And the second part of the book is taking emotions as the path, what I was describing to you about working with emotional energies, and not just emotional energies, all the unseen energies of the world that are present. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of energies in the world that we have to befriend that are not always pleasant. And so it's about taking emotions and our not taking our reactivity as path, but how do we befriend and lean into our emotions to find wisdom. Mm -hmm. And then um, I talk about this non-duality of not one, not two, our interconnectedness. Mm -hmm. This has to do with compassionate exchange that when we touch hearts truly with people, we can have moments of no separation. Mm -hmm. Not one, we say not one, not two. And it's, um, I think, what we're longing for. Yeah. Uh, and then the last part of the book is about applying the work contemplative psychology to different things different themes like one is i've always been an ecologist so it's about working with eco anxiety mm. and also embracing death and transition and also love and all the elements that's beautiful thank you what can you tell everybody who wants to improve their life by the time this episode is going to be published it's going to be 2023 and yeah. it's the beginning of another new year. And how can we live our life a little bit differently this year and feel a little bit better or happier or even feel the contentment that you spoke about? How can we even begin to do that? Well, instead of like a, a really um, grand scale idea of like, I want to meditate every day or something like that, which can be very hard for people depending on their lives or what their circumstances are. I think committing to 
getting outdoors in nature and raising your gaze and letting the elements touch you mm-hmm. at least for if you can 20 minutes a day in some form is so healing without gadgets okay. without gadgets you know <laughs> that's the hard part yeah right? You've got this podcast, you want to listen to it. I've got 14 in a row. And the only time I'm going to be able to hear them is when I'm on my walk. (laughs) But really letting nature, you know, do its magic, because all those it's, it's already been proven that when you allow the natural light, natural air, natural space and earth under your feet, and the water and the trees and the greenery and so forth, it improves your mind, it opens your mind and your heart. It just does. So get a dog, you know, that you have to take out (laughs) or something like that, you know, because dogs force you if you're ready uh, to be outdoors. But uh, getting outdoors is so important, I think. Okay. I think that's more doable than (laughs) sitting in meditation for 20 minutes. I do too. Uh, for most people, I yeah. agree. And then they might get curious, like, how can I have more space in my life? And if, if you want more space in your life, then that's where meditation comes in. Because it's, I could say meditation is a an invitation for space in your life, an in, mm. invitation to sanity. Mm. So, And I want more sanity in my life. We all do. (laughs) We all do. We all do. (laughs) It is so nice to talk to you, Masako. Thank you for your kindness and your curiosity. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed the conversation. Me too. Thank you. Meditation is an invitation to sanity. I think we should frame that quote and read it every day. Here are the takeaways. Number one. For so many of us, sitting in silence and stillness is so difficult because we hold trauma or suppressed emotions such as self-hatred in our bodies and we have not learned how to deal with them. Let's give ourselves a lot of grace as we meet our internal selves. Number two, meditation is about synchronizing our body, our breath, and our mind in the present moment and when we are in this synchronization we join with the wisdom of the world number three take a moment and look at your everyday environment that is a reflection of the current state of your mind how does it look is your room or house or fridge cluttered or nice and clean number four How we move through our day determines the quality of our life. When we establish a relationship with our life that is mindful, everything we do becomes an event. Cooking a meal becomes an event. Doing laundry becomes an event. After all, life is a series of these mindful events. Number five, meditation prepares us to handle challenging life situations with more ease and grace. The amount of stability we have or don't have will affect the way we handle life when things get tough. Number six, we could approach meditation with an attitude of getting it done in order to gain something and get to the next level. But 
That is not the point of meditation at all. Number seven, when we insert time for meditation into our day, somehow we have more time in our day. It is a strange paradox of life. What is happening is that through consistent meditation practice, you are changing the way you relate to time. You slow down enough to actually experience the experience of life, good or bad, and that leads you to sanity. Number eight, how well you're doing in life is measured by how content you are. And not by any of the external achievements. Number nine, there is a lot of sadness in life for sure, but the real question is can you stay open and feel the sadness rather than closing yourself off? And furthermore, can you still feel the joy despite the sadness? That is what makes you a compassionate human being. Number 10, People around us are mirrors. We become aware of our mental conditioning by interacting with others. And through unpacking the mental conditioning, we come back to our natural state, which is open, vulnerable, and permeable. And coming back to our natural state will allow us to make genuine heart contacts with others, which is what we desperately want. Number 11. If you want to improve your life, commit to going outdoors and spending 20 minutes in nature every day without your phone. Let the natural elements heal you effortlessly. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can get to know more about Melissa and Karuna Training by visiting their website at karunatraining.com or their Instagram page at karunatraining. I'll leave these links and also a separate link to her book titled The Diamonds Within Us on the show notes. Thank you so much for listening. If this conversation touched you or inspired you in any way, please let me know. I'd love to hear your feedback. And if you know someone who would benefit from listening to this episode, please share it. Also, I have been hanging out more in our private Facebook group called Why Not Meditate. We are holding conversations and sharing lots of helpful resources there. It is so nice to have a community of like minded people who are also going through life. So I'll leave a link on the show notes so that you can click and join. I look forward to seeing you there. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, subscribe and leave a review. Also, share the episode with a friend who might benefit from meditation. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, why not meditate?